Hey, this is Robbie Baseball from the Dingers Fantasy Baseball Podcast, and you are listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 249, Lost in Translation Movie Review. McBrien along with Derek Myers and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Now, last week we took a look at a movie celebrating its 20th anniversary. We went back and reviewed School of Rock. So this time out, we're going to follow that up with another film that debuted 20 years ago. Derek wanted us to go back and watch Lost in Translation. So we're going to get to our review shortly. But first, Derek, what pop culture can you educate me on this week, my friend? All right. Well, I didn't have a lot of chance to watch a lot of stuff. So uh, but we'll we'll run down the list. So first, I got a couple of relatively new things. So the first one, I started watching the new show on Disney Plus History of the World Part Two sequel to the Mel Brooks movie History of the World Part One. This is interesting because, I mean, I love History of the World Part One. It is one of my favorite 80s comedies came out in 1981. Love Mel Brooks. I'm very skeptical about History of the World Part Two. Not gonna lie, haven't watched it. Please yeah. educate it, me. What's going it, on? You you should be skeptical. No. There, there, so it's eight thirty-minute episodes, and just so like it's, a, so it's a series. It's a show. It's a series. Yeah. Oh, and interesting. Mel Brooks is is in them in the very beginning. He does a little intro setting it up, like sort of this is how and why we're doing this. And of course, it's Mel Brooks himself, and but it's done in a very funny way that is very like you get the sense that okay he's clearly on board with this um and just like with the first movie it's a bunch of like little sketches that take place in various parts of history but what i didn't realize until we had got a couple episodes in is they keep going back to certain sec sections and time frames with those characters almost like um like with a a tv show or a soap opera where you've got numerous storylines sort of happening and you're constantly back and forth between the various stories and characters. And this is sort of set up that way. So each segment where they show it is is its own little self-contained skit. But in another episode, they'll go back and sort of pick up where that last skit left off and do another skit. So I'm not loving it, but I'm not hating it. I'm only I think we're three or four episodes in. So we're just halfway. I'm curious enough to want to see where it goes. And there's enough humor in it that I'm interested, but I'm certainly not loving it. It's not an A plus yet. I don't think it's going to quite get there right now. It's sort of very middle of the road for me. It could, it could go either way. Uh, it's got a fantastic cast of who's who in comedy. Um, I'm, I'm not going to run on the list, but it's, I, I think almost every single performer that's in this, I recognize, even if I don't know their name and I'm familiar with a lot of their work. So I would say maybe Chris, give it the watch the first thirty minutes, mm-hmm. uh, first episode. If you're not digging it, you're probably like it's not like some you know some shows people say well you got to get past the first couple episodes and then it really takes off. Right. 
this one in the first episode, it like that's the tone of the show. If you're not in love with it and you don't feel that it's been a good 30 minutes, don't waste your time with the rest. So I'll let you know next week how the rest of it ends up. But I, I figure it, I got a pretty good sense of where I'm a little bit torn on the, them doing it this way. I think I'd rather see them after all these years come back and do History of the World Part 2 as a movie, like as a feature film, not as a like a series with a bunch of episodes. I don't know. And if you remember at the end of History of the World Part 1, it, right before the credits roll, remember they give you a little mm-hmm. preview of some of the things that are going to come up on History of the World Part 2, like Hitler on ice and Jews in space. I was really hoping that they would see with Jews in space, maybe like those space lasers that that uh, Marjorie Taylor Green was talking about. So I Jeez. thought, I don't know, there's ways to incorporate new things in here. I don't know. I don't know if I like this idea of it being... A 30 minute show so oh, this will be interesting. well again i would say watch even just the first 10 minutes and mel brooks actually talks about why they did what they did and the way they're doing it right. um so you know i would say give it 30 minutes watch the first one and then if you don't like it stop watching yeah all right okay uh what i watched i watched uh from last year 2021 the musical adaptation of the broadway stage play dear evan hansen hmm are you familiar with this? Not at all. No. Nope. No. Okay. Well, it was a huge Broadway success, and uh, they turned it into a movie. And okay. the main performer, who was the lead on Broadway, who won a Tony for his his performance, was the lead in the movie, which is great. Uh, and I, so I I remembered watching the Tony Award, so I was familiar with the the songs, and I was a little bit familiar with the with the story, but not that much. And then. I watched the trailer for the movie and went, oh, that's what that's about? Okay, I'm going to give it a shot. And I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. I thought the movie was great. I thought the story was great. I thought the songs were great. I thought the performances were pretty good. Um, But no, I loved it. And I'm not really a big musical theater guy, but I get two big thumbs up for me on this one, Dear Evan Hansen. So uh, if you haven't seen it and you're looking for uh, something to watch and – it, uh, it deals with some pretty heavy subject matter, but it does it in a way that I, I, I felt was pretty decent. And uh, yeah, no, I really liked it. Dear Evan Hansen, check it out. Okay. Uh, had a chance to, uh, like so many other people, I watched the first season of the HBO story, The Last of Us, based on the video game. So the season finale was last week. So it was nine episodes. Okay. And uh, Chris, I assume this is not in your wheelhouse. It's a post-apocalyptic type story. <laughs> right. Although my wife and I were talking about maybe watching some of them, so maybe I'll check back in a little bit if we actually get around to it. Well, it was uh, it was really good. It got it set all sorts of ratings records for HBO, and I think it's great. There were a couple of episodes that were okay, but there were a couple of episodes that were like the best thing I've seen on TV. So overall, I really enjoyed it. It got uh, strong reviews across the board. Honestly, I thought the it, it sort of followed the Game of Thrones model where I thought the second to last episode was great, and the last episode was just okay. But they had already announced that they were going to be doing a season two. Like the, from what I understand, the story was conceived of as two seasons of television and it's based on the, the video game franchise. So I knew that there was going to be a lot of open ended stuff by the end of the season. Again, I don't know the game video game franchise, so I have no idea what's going to happen. But I knew we were not going to get complete closure after one season just right out of the gate. And so as long as you're OK with that. I would definitely say check it out. It, it's very good. It's very strong. I know this isn't really your genre, but, uh, but no, and you're, and sorry, you're saying it's, it's sort of structured to be two seasons and then be done. Well, that's what they were saying. Now, okay. again, my understanding is there was, it's based on the video game, the last of us, and then they did a second video game. So this, this, from what I understand, the TV show is supposed to be 
season one, season two is the first video game, which I guess by the end of the first video game, there's closure. So at the end of the second TV season, we're supposed to get to where the end of the first video game was. If the show continues to be a hit, I suspect they will continue to make more episodes and move into whatever the next set of video games do. But they could do the Game of Thrones things where they're like, well, we don't really care where the books went. We're just going to do our own thing. I don't know. But there's money to be made and it's very popular. So we're so- going to see this for a while. Video games are really about, like, storytelling and stuff now. It's not like, like the second level of Donkey Kong. <laughs> like, not usually, day, no. For back in my day. I mean, as, as a D&D nerd, like, mm-hmm. that's, that's what role-playing games have always been about. It's the choose-your-own-adventure. It's the immersive storytelling. And that's right. what video games have become. Um, I guess. For better I, for worse. I'd, I mean, I'd, I'd rather just spend a whole, you know, boatload of quarters playing Galaga. But I mean, that's just me, you know. Yeah. So, and then uh, I didn't have a time to watch a documentary, but I did watch oh. a stand-up comedy special. So oh. we'll, we'll sort of slot that in as a, you know, just left of center. So uh, on Amazon, there was a new comedy special by uh, a comedian that I really like. His name is Nate Bargetzi. Uh mm-hmm. His previous one that sort of his claim to fame was the Tennessee Kid, and uh, he had a couple of specials on Netflix. And he has a really, really funny bit where he talks about like the sort of his, you know, how like. Stand-up comedians will often have like their signature bit. His signature bit is about ordering a uh, coffee with cream and he gets a coffee with whipped cream and it's this whole misunderstanding and it's really funny. That was sort of his big staple. And so he had a couple of specials on Netflix and then I guess for whatever reason, this last one was just dropped like two weeks ago on Amazon. Don't know why it went to the other network. I guess there was, you know, they threw money at him and he said, yes, I like money. It was really good. So if you're a fan of uh, Nate Bargetzi, also known as the Tennessee Kid, He's got a new special on Amazon. Uh, it's called Hello World. Uh, he is very family friendly. He's uh, definitely a PG, probably more like a PG-13 rated comedian. He doesn't use swears, but he does have some bits where he, you know, implies certain things like to do with sex or, or you know, he really he just makes fun of people being stupid, which I guess probably isn't really PG-13. But uh, no, his bits and, are and apparently good. makes jokes about having whipped cream in his coffee. And made a whole yeah. career out of that. Good for him. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. So anyway, not quite a documentary, but uh, mm. not a scripted program. So let's just put it that way. So Nate Bargetzi, Hello World on Amazon. I thought it was great. I give it two thumbs up. Mm. And that, that's all that you were able to get around to, I guess. Eh? Well, I got tons more, but we're not going to go into okay. it. I already rambled on. What, what did, did you get to? I did something that you might find somewhat surprising, Derek. Uh, it's certainly outside of my comfort zone. I went to the theater to see a new movie. Shocking. I know. Yeah. I know. So my kids wanted to go see the movie 65 stars. Adam. Oh, I want to see that. How yeah. is it? It's about this guy from another planet who travels by spaceship to earth 65 million years ago. So he crashes this spaceship, you know, into the Jurassic period. And there's like dinosaurs on the earth. It was hands down. One of the single worst movies I've ever seen in my entire life. Wow. Okay, well, you just saved me 15 bucks. Thanks, bud. Yeah, I would rather watch Jaws for the Revenge on an infinite loop than sit through that crap again. But anyway, that's not what I want to talk to you about, Derek. You've been to the movies recently, right? Like more than me. I never go to the movies. Yeah, we just went and saw Ant-Man a couple of weeks ago. There you go. Have you noticed anything about movie trailers these days, Derek? Well, I don't watch the trailers because they tend to give away the whole movie. Mm. Here's the thing. It used to be the movie trailers didn't contain any questionable material. They were always suitable for all audiences. Let me tell you, not anymore. So I take my family to go see this 65 movie. And before it starts, as usual, 
they run these movie trailers for upcoming movie releases, right? Pretty standard stuff. The first movie trailer was from, I don't know, it was this Exorcist movie, you know, The Exorcist. It was starring Russell Crowe, and it was really scary. It was very intense, and the, the scenes they were showing were basically like for an R-rated audience. My youngest kid, he was scared watching this thing. But that's not the worst part. Then they run a trailer for this Jennifer Lawrence movie. I think it was called No Hard Feelings, if I remember correctly. It's about this older couple that hires Jennifer Lawrence to sleep with their nerdy son. And right in the trailer, Jennifer Lawrence says, you want me to your son? Your son is Wow. And I'm sitting there in the theater with my two young kids wondering what the hell is going on. And I'm looking around and there's other people in there that all have little kids in there. And you know me, Derek, I'm like not really a prude. But what the hell are they doing showing these R-rated movie trailers with like profanity and stuff in them when there's kids in the audience and they're talking about like, you know, the F word and everything else. What in the actual hell? Where do I write to complain about this? I'm a grumpy old man now, I guess. I don't know. I just, I was shocked. I just couldn't believe it. But I'm guessing that the people working in the movie theater who probably get paid minimum wage just put the wrong trailer reel in your theater because they're not held accountable for their mistakes. If I had to guess, that's probably what happened. I guess now, I'm assuming now that they have R-rated movie trailers where they'll swear and drop the F-bomb and stuff. And I guess maybe they're supposed to, like you, you said, maybe they're supposed to play them when there's an R-rated movie playing, but this was a PG movie, 65. That was my next question. What was the movie rate? Now PG. I know they- It was all kids they, in there. They've often, I remember like in previous, previously, you would have what they called red band trailers. So normally you would get the green screen saying, this is suitable for all audiences. And then you'd have the trailer, but then they would do ones that had a red screen that said, this is for uh, audiences restricted. Like you have to, you know, f- uh, same, the same qualifications you would have for an R-rated movie. And so those are the ones you would often see online for like raunchy comedies and stuff where exactly to your point, they would use bad words or you would see boobs in the trailer. But those ones were very rarely shown in North American theaters. They were exclusively in many cases for online. So I don't know. Maybe it's uh, I, honestly, if I had to guess, I think someone just made a mistake and uh, they know I, that. Yeah. I was shocked and I was looking around. I'm seeing other parents and their kids. I'm thinking, what is going on here? Anyway, let's clean things up a little bit with this. Here's your dad joke of the week. I promise I'll keep it clean this week. You know, like last week. Yeah. All right. So, Derek, why were Billy Joel's clothes all wet? Billy Joel's clothes. I have no idea. Because he didn't start the dryer. You're going to be under pressure to come up with a better joke next week. (laughs) Rocky 3, I think, was the best one. He is so jacked in this movie. Oh, my God, does he look fantastic in this film. I am the tiger, baby. I'm going to give it another try. I don't watch too many movies after 1989. (laughs) (laughs) I know next to nothing about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Boo. All right, Derek, like I mentioned, it was over to you to nominate a film celebrating 20 years since its debut, and you wanted us to go back and watch Lost in Translation. So I put the question to you, my friend, why this movie? Uh, another thing, too, you mentioned your wife last week she, that she said this movie was boring. It was a bad choice for us to do on this podcast. So why did you want us to watch this movie and review it? Go ahead. 
So I I hadn't seen it in its entirety probably in almost the 20 years since it came out. I remember we saw it in the theater and then I remember seeing it again on video like maybe a year later. And at the time I can remember uh, I definitely knew that it was slow. It's a character study. It's a dialogue driven piece. It's it's uh, you know, it's certainly not a shoot 'em up bang bang action movie, but it definitely got a lot of critical praise when it came out. It was nominated for best picture. Uh, best director, best screenplay, best actor. Like it got a lot of critical praise when it came out and continued to get a lot of critical praise throughout the years, especially when people started looking back on it 10 years later when they did, oh, it's the 10th anniversary of this movie. People watched it again and went, I like it even more 10 years later. I think it holds up really well, rah, rah, rah. So I hadn't seen it in a long time and it was actually on TV on one of the movie channels a couple of weeks ago. And like late at night, I was flicking through trying to find something when I was half asleep and and it came on. I thought, oh, my God, I haven't watched this in a long time. And I found myself I was like, oh, I'll just watch five minutes. Just, you know, what parts of that? And then I, I realized I watched like 15 or 20 minutes and I was really enjoying it. And I thought, you know what? I'm jumping in halfway. This is doing a disservice to this movie. Let's go back and watch it from the beginning. And then when I realized it was actually celebrating anniversary this year, I thought I'll just nominate it when we get to 2003. And sure enough, you pick 2003. I'm like, bingo, here we go. We're going to watch it. Um, I watched it again this week and. I, I really enjoyed it this time through. Uh, definitely, I have some comments about it, good, bad, and otherwise. But uh, I, I don't know what your feelings are going to be on this. You tend to dislike everything, no matter what it is. So I thought, <laughs> you know what? Love it or hate it, I'm just going to give you the movie that I want to watch. And we'll right. see where we land. So what did you think? So I had never seen this movie coming into this. And I, as you know, I'm a huge Bill Murray fan of his early work. Like, I mean, Meatballs is one of my favorite movies of all time. Stripes, Ghostbusters. You know, Caddyshack. I mean, like Bill but Murray. But you knew coming in, this wasn't a, a laugh out loud, ha Bill Murray comedy. Like, yeah, I know. Because I think later in his career now, he's done a lot of like these weird movies. Like there was the Life Aquatic and yeah. like this. He's in Rushmore and yeah. Royal Tenenbaums. He did a lot of stuff with Wes Anderson. Haven't and seen he was it. in the Hamlet remake. Um, uh, I can't remember if it was the Ethan Hawke one or the uh, the the Mel Gibson one, but he was in one of the Hamlets. And, and again, he was quite good in that. Well, um, regardless, I have not watched any of those movies. Like, I don't know really his sort of later, you know, career stuff. So going into this, I, I got to say, I went in with a little bit of skepticism to say the least. This movie was fantastic. Oh, I'm so glad. you. Oh liked my it. God. Was this movie good? I, I didn't know what to expect. Um, it was interesting because, you you know, you mentioned your wife said it was really boring. And we're going to get to that, too, because I watched it with my wife. And I'll tell you what she said about it later. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> but I, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. And it, it was highly critically acclaimed, like you mentioned. And we'll touch base on that as well. And and rightly so, I think. Now, when we look back, we, we did take a look back at the box office from 2003. Yeah, I don't know week. how well it did in the money department. But, it, uh, it, it did not do well. It finished all the way down at 93rd that year it took in 30.9 million dollars it had a budget of only four million dollars so i mean it didn't really really well, well that yeah that's what i read it had a very small budget yeah. and it like sorry i think i read somewhere it made worldwide something like 140 or 150 million off of like a less than five million dollar budget so although total dollars may not sound like a lot compared to what was the number one movie but from a percentage of what it cost versus what it brought in it did very well. Like people who invested in this movie made a good return on their money. Oh, yeah. And like I say, it, it finished 93rd, but it did finish ahead of like Johnny English, the dance masterpiece, Honey, Dumb and Dumberer, so stupid. And of course, from Justin to Kelly. 
So it finished ahead of all those movies. So at least it did something. But it didn't really resonate with audiences when it first came out. But I want to talk a little bit about the director, Sofia okay. Coppola. Because she started as an actress. I never saw The Godfather Part 3. But I remember when it came out, my roommate in university uh, hated that movie. And I remember him ranting and raving about how awful she was, especially in the... He's like, she ruined this movie. You know, and I think a lot of people felt that there was obviously nepotism, you know, with Francis Ford Coppola oh, being no her question. dad and all, obviously. So I don't know if it was just such a bad experience for her acting that she decided, OK, you know what? I'm going behind the camera. Screw this. You know, because she wrote and directed this this film. I, I do think it's fair to say that I think the direction is one of the best parts of this film. It, it definitely sets a unique pace and style mm-hmm. for the movie. Um, now, she was nominated for Best Director. Um, she won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. Yep. But but like you said, this movie was very, very critically acclaimed. So it, like I say, you know, so she, she was, it was also nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor in a Leading Role, Bill Murray, and Best Director, Sofia Coppola, obviously. Uh, didn't win those, but, it, but she won, like I say, for Original Screenplay. But the BAFTA Awards, it won Best Performance by an Actor. Bill Murray. It won Best Performance by an Actress with Scarlett Johansson and Best Editing at one. The AFI Awards, it, it won Movie of the Year. And the AARP Movies for Grown Ups Award, it won for Best Actor, Bill Murray. And we don't want to forget about our friends over at the AARP because, <laughs> you know, they obviously, they've, they've shown our podcast some love in the recent years. You know, top 10 podcasts women should be listening to now. In 2018 and 2022 is us. So we love those people. So let's talk a little bit about the cast, I think, is is a good place to start. So Bill Murray. I felt like it was like maybe a play for him, maybe later in his career. Like Maybe I'm going to try and transition into more serious roles, you know. And it was funny because if you step back and look at it, that kind of went out the window because he followed up this movie with Garfield, where he did the voice of the CGI cat. So I don't know about that. Well, that was probably just, they drove a dump truck full of money up to his house and said, you can work in your underpants. And he went, okay, I'm sure it was just a big cash grab. Obviously. And he's earned it. Why not? Yeah. But it was funny because earlier in his career too, he dabbled in more serious roles with very little success. Yeah. He did the Razor's Edge in 1984. And I remember the Where the Buffalo Roam. In 1980, he did it because he wanted to play Hunter S. Thompson. Um, but he was the only actor considered for this part. Like, Coppola uh, yeah, wrote it with him in mind. And, you know, so I guess he met with her, you know, and they they met, and they talked about it, and he agreed to do this movie early in the writing process. She only had just finished a rough draft at that point. But the thing is, he never signed a contract. He was notorious for this yeah. sort of thing. I remember back in 1979 when he did Meatballs, one of my favorite movies of all time. The cast and crew is up here in Halliburton, Ontario. They don't know if he's going to show up or not. So they begin shooting on day one. And lo and behold, a car pulls up and Bill Murray shows up late in a, in a pair of shorts and a Hawaiian shirt. And that's what he's wearing in the opening scene of the movie in Meatballs. That's what they shot on the first day. But um, I think Wes Anderson actually went to Coppola and said, listen, I know Bill Murray. He's good to his word. If he said he's going to do the movie, he is going to show up. And he did. So 
obviously you liked him in this role. I thought he was brilliant. Yeah, I think I think this is definitely uh, his absolute best dramatic performance. Uh, I don't know if you could go so far as to say this was the best thing he's ever done, just because I think some of his comedy is just so, so good. good. But yeah. if we did, if we much like with, say, the Golden Globes, where you've got your dramas over here and your comedies over here from a drama point of view, I, I think this is hands down his best work. And uh, from what I was reading in the trivia, when they've asked him, what's your what's your what do you think your best work is? What's your favorite film? This is his number one answer all yeah. the time. He thinks this is the best thing he's done and his favorite thing he's worked on. So, uh, you know, true or not, you can't necessarily believe everything you read on the Internet, but it doesn't surprise me if that is true. He lost uh, the Oscar to Sean Penn in Milk. And I think that's I mean, um, like Sean Penn is good, was good in Milk, but I think Sean Penn's award might have also been a little bit more of a body of work type Oscar. Oh, and I don't know about that. I think if ever there was a body of work Oscar, it'd be Murray here just because um, Sean Penn had won previously for Mystic River. I think he won for two. So, I mean, he'd already won before. And, and I mean, <clears throat> when you step back now and look, it's been 20 years, mm-hmm. which performance stands out more? Oh yeah, no question. Bill Murray and Lost in Translation, yeah. or 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 Milk. You no, know? no, yeah. I don't know. He, Bill Murray should have won this. <laughs> he was he was. Really I, I absolutely agree. I had the year in the Oscar pool. I had Bill Murray to win it, and I mean, I shouldn't yeah. have because they I always, think, you know, he was sort of, of the outside looking in. He was the one you hoped would win, but we all sort of knew secretly he probably wasn't going to. But uh, yeah, what, what about Scarlett Johansson? Now I have a question for you. Is it is it Johansson or Johansson? I've never heard it pronounced like the Y. I've always heard it Johansson. Johansson? Okay. That's how, again, don't know. Don't know personally, couldn't say, but that's yeah. how I've always heard it. Um, Johansson. Because I was asking yeah. my wife that too, and she's like, oh, I don't know. Now, this well, might sound... I've heard, I've heard like like they do in Hollywood, especially with women, they like to give her the, the nickname. So I've heard her called ScarJo. Oh, uh, okay. not, not something that I particularly care for, right. but I've heard it. Um, uh, yeah, when we're watching this, when I was watching this, it... I was a little surprised by how young she is in this movie because mm-hmm. I'm used to seeing her now. She's in like she's been in the Marvel movies and she she was done a lot of recent dramatic performances and like a lot of big movies. So um, I'm used to seeing her now. And then I watch this. And I'm like, oh, my God, is she ever young? And I looked it up and it said she was 17 when they started filming this movie. Oh, I thought she yeah, was like 19 when she did this. I, I read it conflicting reports. Uh, mm. So again, she's still somewhere, let's say somewhere between 17 and 19, depending mm-hmm. on what you read. Um, and I obviously, I assume the character she's playing is supposed to be a couple years older. And we can talk about that as we go through. Sure. Um, but I was just surprised uh, by my memory. I was just expecting her to, to look older, but she still really looks like a kid in this. And then to see her performance, you're like, wow. She was that good 20 years ago. Like, no wonder she's had such success. Like, she really knows what she's doing. And, I mean, uh, not sound like a perv because she's clearly a teenager, but she looks pretty damn good in this movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we'll, we'll come back to that in a second. Like, this this may or may not surprise you, but I don't really know a lot of her other work. Like, I know she was a real thing there for a, a bit, though, wasn't she? Like, she, well, like you mentioned, she was in some Marvel movies, right? But I don't, I don't watch those, so I don't know. Like she was in uh, Jojo Rabbit, which was nominated for an Oscar a couple of years ago. She was in Marriage Story, which was nominated for Oscars. I think she was nominated for an Oscar for that, if I remember correctly. So, it's 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 you know how a lot of the things in Hollywood they say movie stars they do one for them and one for me, where the one for them is like a big blockbuster movie, and then the one for me is a little artsy fartsy movie. That sort of seems to be what she's doing. It's like the one for them are these Marvel movies, and then the one for her are these ones that get this critical praise and these these award nominations and. 
she seems to be playing it uh, playing it pretty well. Like, well, I mean, she was young when she did it, as you mentioned. This was her first big role. She had done other smaller roles prior to this movie, but in a lot of ways, this is the movie that sort of exposed her to mainstream audiences. Bit of a pun there, <laughs> I guess I should say, uh, because she's wearing her underwear for most of the movie. But uh, talk about a way to get exposure. I, I was right? going to say that to me, I, I could totally relate to because honestly, with the pandemic, when I'm at home now. I'm always just walking around my underpants. I get so used to it during the pandemic. I'm like, well, nobody's coming over. Why put on big boy pants? Uh, you just got to remember when you're doing those on-camera work things that if you're not wearing long pants, not to stand up and go away and get a coffee. <laughs> Good idea. Yeah. And like this movie basically opens up with a shot of her butt in these sheer panties. Like yeah. That's how the movie opens up. Now, the funny one thing goes on, like she wasn't comfortable wearing those on camera. So Sophia Coppola actually had to model them herself. And walk around on the set. And then Scarlett Johansson was like, okay, I'm comfortable. I'll do it. So yeah, it's interesting. Nice. Um, Want to talk a little bit about the themes in this film? Because I think that sure. they're really, really important. Things like loneliness and yep. isolation and insomnia even. It's not just a fish out of water story. I think that's what I like the most about it. Because, I mean, that's one of the oldest tropes in movie history, right? But on a bigger scale, it's, like, it's not even just not fit again you know there's i don't know there's just so much going on and like even that whole idea of not fitting in like bill murray like they just reinforce this so his clothes don't even fit yeah you know like i mean it's just I love those clips on the back yeah. of his jacket oh yeah. man i laughed when that happened and his sleeves are too long and stuff so you mentioned um that your wife didn't like it you know well, I don't think she didn't like it as much as I think she, she just boring. remembered yeah. that it was slow and uh, like a, a character study, which, hey, don't get me wrong. She loves movies like we love movies. She can appreciate it from an artistry point of view. But I know her. She doesn't want to do a rewatch of something that's not super exciting. Like dialogue pieces are not her bag. So I knew immediately when I say that to her last week, she's she was making the, you know, the snoring noises. She's mm -hmm. like, Chris, is going to hate it. No one's listening to this episode. That's the most boring movie. Good luck with that. Well, as I mentioned, I watched it with my wife and guess what? Like she thought it was boring and she thought it sucked too. I think it was maybe like 30 minutes into this thing. And she turns to me and she's like, this movie is boring. And then she proceeded to remind me of this about every 15 minutes. <laughs> she just kept saying, oh my God. And then at the end, she's like, this movie sucked. So, you know, it was interesting. The wives didn't like it, but you and I both liked it. So I wonder why that is. You know, well, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I I'd like to think that, um, you know, part of the reason I think that we enjoyed it is like we're movie guys, right? We both mm -hmm. studied film. We both uh, have that. You know, I, I, I watch a lot of movies as, as we talk about every week on this podcast. I watch a ton of movies, but I've watched a lot of the classics and I've studied film. And so, like, I can appreciate a movie for more than was the explosion realistic, um, you know, which is not to say that the women in our lives can't do that either. But. I don't know. I, I think maybe you and I are just sometimes watch these with a little bit of a more critical eye. Um, I know it's a small sample size that we're dealing with here, obviously. But I wonder, is it a gender thing? Like, because I, I, I was thinking that maybe it had to do with this fact that there's an older man befriending this younger, attractive female. That maybe could, that could be a little bit off-putting for women. But because at one point my wife says to me, she's like, this is just so weird. He's old and gross. And she's young and beautiful. This is just wrong, you know? And but it's not 
Sorry, and we're sort of stepping on it, but that was one of the things that I really liked about this movie was that I never once for a minute thought that the intent was for them to sleep with each other. And I think that's what I really liked about it. And that's why I thought it held up well is I I always like right from the beginning, I never got the impression that he was like trying to get her into bed or that she was like, I'm going to have this fling with this older guy. I never, never once thought that was where this movie was going and I'm glad it never went there. And, and I think that's part of why I liked it. I think if that had been a part of this movie by the end, they hooked up. I don't think it would hold up. I don't think it would have got the praise it got. And I'm wondering if maybe when your wife was watching it, that was her expectation from the outset. Yeah, so she think, sort of was colored, you know, her perception was colored before she even got more than five minutes into the movie. Yeah. She was probably thinking, you know, as she's watching, Oh, they're probably going to hook up, you know, so typical. The old man, the young hot girl, they hook up, you know, typical, you know. So I think maybe that might be the issue. Because like you said, that's not what happens in this movie. No, no, you not know? at all. And I, the the females, you know, maybe in the audience may have thought that was going to happen. But it, it just doesn't. This movie is not about a physical relationship at all. It's about kinship. No. It's about two yeah. lost souls who find yeah. each other and need each other, right? I mean, Hell was directed by a female director. And, and I agree with you. I think that's where the genius of this movie is 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 the typical hollywood movie especially if it was directed by a man it would have this older man in japan meet the hot young girl and they totally end up hooking up but that's not what goes on here like i say it's it's about two lonely souls who just they find each other as friends and that's it you know well and and so after i watched this movie uh and i only just watched it today because you know i was just so busy this week and but i'm glad i did because i i wanted to talk about it right away and i think if i had watched this on the weekend i would have been like for five days i would have been sitting there going come on why are we recording this i want to talk about this um so i read a lot of stuff just before we got on the mic tonight and one of the themes that kept coming up in the reviews and in the in the comments that i thought was completely accurate was that um the idea that you have two strangers who under most normal circumstances would probably never meet and never become friends. They're sort of in the circumstance where they do become friends and then they're able to just be their absolute true selves with this other person because they know this is a probably going to be a very short term relationship, small R relationship, not sexual relationship in any way, short relationship with no real consequences, so to speak. And you can just be yourself and you can be completely honest and you get the perspective from somebody who doesn't know all about your baggage or all about your history. All they can see is what they're seeing in front of them. All they know is what you tell them and what they're reading from your body language. But because you have that anonymity factor, you can be yourself. They get a true sense of what your issues are or what your problems are or what your pleasures are or what your ambitions might be. And I think that's why this relationship works so well. You have these two people that are both suffering in, in different ways that find sort of, like you said, a kindred spirit where they can just relax, put their guard down, be themselves and help each other simply by being there for the other person, even though in the course of the movie is what, four or five days and that's it. And you have no expectation by the end of the movie that these two people will ever see each other again. And I, I love it. I love just that. This is it. Here's a, a tiny slice of their life. And these, this relationship, I would think probably affects both of them for the rest of their life. And going back to that, that her age, you know, um, she, she, like you said, 17, maybe 18, 19. She looks like she's about 15, I thought. At yeah, some she point looks, in the movie. she looks like, really not, not her body, but I mean, her face, like when I mean, she looks really, really young, which is probably maybe why she was cast. I, I think maybe part of the point is to provide this tension 
you know, for the audience, like, will they, won't they, you know? But it was never going to happen between them. Like I never said. thought they would. Yeah. Never. I, and when I saw it way back when, I never got that impression either. To me, it almost, it, it in my mind, I was always thinking of it as like the parent-child relationship. I mean, towards the end, there's a little bit of kissing, which would kind of make that relationship a little creepy. Like, not mm-hmm. that it was deep tongue kissing, but I, it was more than a kiss you would give to your daughter, I think. Right. Um, and I read that some of that was was ad libbed sort of towards the end of the shoot because they had become such good friends and they were really in character. Um, but yeah, that especially with George Clooney or no, sorry, George Clooney. I, I'm, honestly, I've got a picture of George Clooney on the Internet. Wow, I'm susceptible. <laughs> that um, was up in the air. <laughs> I am literally looking at up in the air. Yeah. I was just clicking through some possible movies for next week. Sorry, I'm doing two things at once um, with um, Bill Murray in the movie. He's receiving faxes and, and calls from his wife and from his kids. And so. In my mind, I'm immediately imagining him as a parent. So when he when he's talking to Scarlett Johansson and he's looking at her, I'm I'm imagining that that's this parent child relationship. That's the dynamic, and uh, I I never thought anything other than that. And I think that works. I think you that's almost what you need to need to have that that uh, um, opinion of it going in. Because like you said, if you're like for example, if your wife thought, oh, these two are going to hook up, well, of course the movie's not going to go where you expect it to go, and then you're going to be well, maybe not disappointed, but you're not maybe not going to love it as much. Yeah, the age difference was definitely like, you know, at play there, I think. Um, but again, I think that's for the audience to interpret, you know, like whether they're, they're going to do this. Definitely, I don't think the thing, the barrier for them to, you know, have a physical relationship was the fact that they were both married. Because yes. Bill Murray ends up having sex with another woman during the movie. So it's not about him being faithful. And they're both not not happy in their marriages. So, you know, not that that's a reason to cheat, but I mean, you know what right. I mean? Um, so the movie, I, I feel like, you know, even though it's kind of slow, you know, and boring, according to our wives, apparently, but I thought there was a lot going on here in this movie. So let's talk about some of the themes. I think not fitting in, <laughs> this is an, a universal theme. And they really kind of get you here. Like, like when he's in the shower, the shower head's really low. Yeah. And like you mentioned, his clothes don't really fit. He doesn't understand the language. The scene where the, where the director is like barking orders at him in Japanese when he's shooting that commercial. My God. And then, and then the translator is yeah. like two words. Yeah. Something really uh, short. Are you sure that was all of it? Is it? Yeah. <laughs> She's like more intense. He's like, is that all he said? Because it seems like he said a lot more. <laughs> that was good. And she's like, no, slower and more intense. And I yeah. kept thinking that whole scene about the cast of the original Star Wars movie. Because they used to always say the only direction they ever got from George Lucas was faster and more intense. And I just kept thinking <laughs> of that overall. But, uh, but again, the takeaway from this scene is like he just doesn't fit in in Japan. And then yeah. there's that... I don't know, was she a hooker or what she was? I don't know what was going on. She comes into his hotel room and she's like, lip my stocking. Oh, like she's like a dominatrix or something. something. Yeah, it, was really, it was weird. Yeah. And I and wasn't, the, so I wasn't she, clear. Let me ask you. Yeah. Do you, cause it, they have this odd exchange and then he eventually falls over and knocks the light and then the scene cuts away. Do you think he had sex with her? Mm-mm, mm-mm. Cause I didn't think so. But then later in the movie, when he, no, he clearly spends so. the night with this lounge singer, I'm like, oh. Well, okay, maybe that made me rethink no, the, because the, the look on his face when he woke up 
the, ne- the next day with the lounge singer was like, what have I done? Yeah, it was oh like, my shame God. And, no, yeah. I don't think he, he he was trying to get out of there with that. Yeah, OK, that, that, girl, that was my lip, my stocking thing. That, yeah. That's what I think. So um, so other things where he doesn't fit in, he gets on that exercise machine. And remember, it's not working. Probably he can't get it to work or whatever. Yeah. Like he just, it just doesn't fit in. He just he just doesn't understand his surroundings. He just doesn't get it. The elevator, even. I was going to say the scene in the elevator where he's literally a head taller than everybody. So else. much taller than everybody yeah. else. Playing on a bit of a stereotype there, but even the arcade that they go to is different. Remember when they go with her friends, the games like there's yeah. a like, guitar hero thing, and then there's this game with all these like buttons. And I'm there's the like the time, drumming I'm thinking, game. Like, yeah, I'm like, where's Pac Man? Like that was a Japanese game, right? So, and, and by the way, I have a question for you. What the hell was that gun thing that the guy at the bar? Remember, he started shooting at oh, them. The it was a BB gun. I had to look it up. It's oh, a BB gun was... with like a uh, like a laser light on it, so that yeah. when the BBs get shot out, it makes a flashing light. That's what yeah, I, was like, I didn't. Is I didn't he get that lasers either. at them. What the hell was no. that? I didn't understand. It's not hurting them. So yeah, oh, that makes sense. I guess. Yeah. And then the other thing that stood out to me was. The scene later when there's the fire alarm and they all have to go outside. Yeah. What's with the Japanese fire department? They look like snow troopers. Yeah, I don't know. From Empire Strikes Back. So weird. So my wife had to point this out to me, of all things, about how dated this movie was. And I can't believe I'm going to say this, you know, because, I mean, you know, I'm I'm from the 80s. But there was a few examples of stuff. (laughs) <laughs> like like the fax machine the fax machine you know what the fax machine reminded me of was back yeah. to the future part two okay where where that where marty goes to the what is the future from 1985 and the communication devices are faxes all over the house and obviously that's we didn't go to faxes we we ended up getting digital technology but that was where my mind immediately went when i saw this and those faxes started going off in the middle of the night i'm like what are we in back to the future two all of a sudden so. Other things that, that kind of stood out were like those Motorola flip phones. Yes. They were like really dated. Um, she, at one point, she's uh, listening to a CD audio book. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm like, that'd be on your phone. And Polaroids were pretty prominent. Yeah. Too, yeah. Well, I mean, the husband's a photographer. So that was, and, and it's funny you mention that because at one point she's looking at the Polaroids and it's clear that those are selfies. They were taken yeah. by the person in the picture. And I thought, you got to remember with Polaroids, you had no idea what, what what was being. It's not like today where you hold up your mobile phone and you can see yourself in the screen and, and right. move your arm and frame it. So I'm like, some of those Polaroids were, were pretty good uh, in the sense that people's heads weren't cut off and things like that. Now, I'm sure that either the pel- Polaroids were were taken by somebody else and just as a movie prop or they probably said, just take 50 or 60 and we'll take the two or three best ones. But so anyway. karaoke is something else I want to mention because it, it plays a role in this movie. And I yep. think the, the the thing that's important in the in the film is when they go to her, her friend's apartment and they sing karaoke, it's the first time you see him smile. Yeah. It's like the first time he's actually enjoying himself. Karaoke is huge in Japan, right? Yeah. That's where do, do you ever do karaoke? I know you're a pretty good singer. I, I haven't in a long time, but I have I have good friends that do karaoke quite regularly. And I keep saying, I keep saying to them, I'm like, hey, now the pandemic's over, you got to invite us to your karaoke. Because um, you know me, I, I have no fear of speaking in front of people and I have no fear of embarrassing myself in front of a crowd. So, you know, I think I'm a decent enough singer. I'll go up there and, and make a fool of myself. I got no problem with that. But. So if you were to get up in front of people and do karaoke, what, what, what are you singing? 
Yeah, I don't know. I, uh, when I was watching this movie, I actually thought of that because uh, he does the uh, the song More Than This by Roxy Music, which I love that song. And I thought his version was fantastic. And I thought, hmm, that's an interesting choice. But I, I don't know, probably something from the 80s, just because you want it. The thing with karaoke is, in my my experience, you want to sing a song that people know because you want them to either praise your ability to do it well or laugh their ass off at how badly you did it. If you sing a song nobody knows, then how do they know if you're doing it well or doing it poorly? Um, just my just my thoughts on karaoke. Whenever I do karaoke, I always do songs from the Blues Brothers and I put everything I got into it. I love doing that. It's interesting that you mentioned that you thought his version uh, of the song was really good because I thought it was poor. And I don't know if it was intentional or not, but one thing I've always thought about Bill Murray, Bill Murray over the years and things I've seen, especially back on SNL, he's not a very good singer. He's not. I remember he no. used to do this sketch, this lounge singer. Yes. You know, he would sing so Star Wars. Yes. What yeah. about those crazy creatures in there? And he was not a good singer. Even in this, he's, he's not a good singer. So. No, but I liked the way, again, with, and I find this is sort of true with a lot of people who are, you know, not great singers is you, you try and sing it in a way that speaks to your ability. Like you don't try and hit the high, high notes. If you know, you can't do them. You don't try and hit the low, low notes. You, you know, you try and do it in a register that, that is comfortable for your, for your voice. But I think part of the reason I liked it was he was almost doing it like a spoken word. Like he was, he was carrying mm. the melody somewhat, but you could really hear what he was saying and understand the lyrics. And I find that uh, you know, in the in the moment of the scene, like the lyrics are reflecting what's happening in the movie. So the fact that he was enunciating and singing them clearly enough that you could actually understand them and they weren't just getting lost in the background music. That's what I think I liked about it a lot. So I want to talk about some scenes from the okay. movie. Uh, the scene in the restaurant when he's making her laugh. Remember, she banged her toe. Oh, earlier. yeah, 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 yeah. At and he's counter, talking, like, he's, he's talking about the knife. That yes. the chef has. And he's like, oh, you've got black toe. He's going to cut off the black. They love it over here. It's like a delicacy. And um, you can totally tell he's just riffing and just yeah, improvising the entire Absolutely. scene. And, she, and her laughing seems really genuine, too, in that scene. And that was the one scene in the film where I felt like the old Bill Murray kind of came through mm-hmm. for me. I like that scene a lot. I thought that was nice. really good. I thought that was good. But probably my one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie was in the hospital waiting room. Little tiny oh, scene. But yeah. man, I don't know why I was laughing when he's waiting for her in the hospital room. Like she's and, and he's talking to that androgynous person with the high voice. Oh, my God. One of my favorite scenes. It is genuinely funny. Like it to me, it encapsulates a lot of the themes that are going on in, in the film. Um, he doesn't understand what, what this person is saying. The woman behind him is laughing at him. So he feels out of place. There's this ambiguousness of the person's gender. He's just uncomfortable, but he's still trying to carry on the conversation. It, it, just, it feels like almost each and every theme of the film is like being played out in that kind of scene. I love that scene. I thought it was great. I, I, I like that scene a lot. And so... I, I had to watch this movie in, in two parts because I was watching it over my lunch hour. So I only had about a half an hour, 40 minutes. And so between then and when I finished watching it right after work, I was reading through some of the trivia while I was on a conference call, again, multitasking. Mm-hmm. And so unfortunately, one of the little trivia tidbits I read told you what that guy in the waiting room was actually saying. It translated the Japanese. 
And I hadn't gotten to that scene yet. So then when I actually watched the scene, knowing what the Japanese guy is saying and seeing Bill Murray's reaction, knowing that Bill Murray's character has no idea what he's saying, I thought that made the scene even better. I think it would have worked just fine if you had no idea and you were, the, you know, I'm the same situation as Bill Murray. I don't really know what he's asking and he's just sort of riffing. But even knowing what was he was actually doing, I thought it made it even better. So it works worked, worked both ways. Very cool. So the scene when they're, when they're in bed, I think is an important scene in the film. And again, going back to kind of what you were saying, like how it's it's not a physical relationship, not about sex. No, they're both fully clothed fully on top clothed. of the bed sheets. Yeah, yeah they're exactly. just laying there because they have nowhere else to go and they're just relaxing. And she and at, she yeah. asks him about marriage and kids and yeah. he opens up. And like you said, this is a, you know, he's really honest with her. And then she opens up about herself. Mm-hmm. And in the, going back to what I said before, in a, in a sort of quote unquote typical Hollywood movie, and like, especially if this was like directed by a man, most likely, this is the part of the script where the characters would have sex. Yeah. But they don't even kiss. And all he does is just touch her hand. And I think the most important thing about this scene is throughout the whole movie so far, up to them, neither one of them have slept. Like they're, they're just yeah up all the time. They can't sleep. They're up in the middle of the night. They're going down to the lounge. But in this scene, after they open up to each other, they both fall asleep. Yeah. And it's just, I don't know. They've, they've opened up to each other. They've had shared this intimacy. And that's as far as this is going to go. They both know it, too, I think. it's Like I say, it's yeah, not about I, sex. It's just about yeah. intimacy. It's about finding someone that understands you, especially when you feel all alone in the world. It's an amazing scene. It's really, really yeah. well done. And, and I think that, uh, and then sort of to go to the idea of the, like, so back to what you just said a minute ago, I think that neither one of them expected things to be any different. Like it's, you know, again, the story would be very different if one of them had an attraction to the other one. And then it was that, will they, won't they, it was, won't they, they, we knew right away that was never part of this, never, never part of this equation. At least I got the, I never got the sense it was, but after that scene, he literally carries her back to her room. Mm-hmm. And again, to me, that's just reinforced the idea of a parent. How many times have as a parent, you've got the kids in the backseat of the car after a long trip and you take you get home and you've got to literally carry them out of the car and put them in bed. Like to me, that that's an act of a parent to a child. So that just reinforced that idea for me of that. That's the nature of this relationship. It's it is absolutely nothing torrid, nothing, uh, you know, sexual, nothing inappropriate. It's it's just two people that can be friends and they happen to be 30 years a difference in age. But they can still have this connection. I want to mention that Japanese TV show that he has to go on. Oh, the Japanese Johnny Carson? Yeah, it's like the host and the set and the, the crazy yelling and stuff. Japanese pop culture is frigging weird, especially well, their TV shows. From our shows. perspective, sure. You know, yeah, like their TV shows are just so weird. And so I think that, that got encapsulated really there. Another scene that stood out to me was when he was in the sauna. He's in the sauna alone and finally... Two Caucasian men are in there with him, but they speak German, so he yeah. can't even relate to them. Like he just can't, and he he can't relate to them. He can't relate to his wife. He can't relate to his commercial director. The only person he can relate to is Charlotte. Yeah, it's it's, it's I think that's a really really good good scene. That like I say, it was directed very well. And then I want to mention that the actual sex scene that's in the movie, obviously not between the two leads. Because he hooks up with the, the red-haired singer from the hotel yeah. lounge. It was interesting because Charlotte comes to his room to ask him to go to the sushi place. And she right. sees 
that he's with another woman. He hears her singing it. She hears her singing in the background. Yeah. So she knows immediately who it is. And she's disappointed and she leaves. Yeah. Honestly, when I first saw that, mm-hmm. I was thinking, is she jealous? But then, no, yeah. to your point, I realized quickly, I'm like, I don't think that's jealousy. I think it's disappointment. I yeah. think you're 100% correct. Yeah. Cause, cause, you know, they, they meet up later and Charlotte makes fun of the red haired woman for being old. Mm-hmm. She's like, mm-hmm. oh, you can both talk about what it was like to grow up in the 50s. Grow up in the 50s. <laughs> she says to him that. So, again, I think it's more that she's like, is it sh- that she's disappointed that he slept with somebody else? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't know. I, was... I think she just wants them to be intimate. You know, it's not about sex. So, I don't know. It was, it was, it was, it, again, it was kind of ambiguous, which is, you know, one of the themes of the film, too. Mm-hmm. And then they go to the hotel lounge for one last night. And it's such a well shot scene because they just sit there and look at each other. And they're, and the yep. thing is they're really close. Yes. Like you think they're going to kiss, but they don't. No. And but then I, they, I will point out in that scene. Yeah. So hearkening back to earlier when he was doing the commercial and the director kept saying, put your hand on your face, put your hand on your face. And it was clear that, um, putting his hand on his face was not something he was comfortable doing. It was clearly didn't seem natural to him in that scene. He puts his hand on his face and oh, it just seems very, that up. seems very, very cool. natural. And it seems just like, like, like a very natural reaction. And you, you know, to me it immediately, I was like an hour earlier in the movie when he was directed to do that for the shoot, he couldn't figure it out yet. Here it was in the moment. He didn't even think of it. It just instinctively reflexively puts his hand on his face, right where the director was telling him to do it earlier. Hmm, interesting. And then when they obviously they leave there and they go to the elevator, they finally kiss. Right. But it's awkward. It's yeah. it's not sexual. It's it's, it's like a platonic no. kiss. Right. Yeah. So I just I think overall, one of the things going back to what I said right at the beginning was I felt like the direction was a big part of this film. You know, like it was very oh, stylistic. It was yeah. the pacing, the composition of the shots, the the layering of the scenes, you know, kind of. So it's, it's really slow and deliberate, you know. Deliberate. That's the exact word. It's, yeah. Yes, it's slow, but it is deliberate. It is yeah. every shot is a deliberate choice. Now, like we've already said, Bill Murray and probably Scarlett Johansson probably ad-libbed sections of this movie. So from that point of view, some of the dialogue may not have been deliberate what's on the script, but the the way it is shot and what was on the screen was very deliberate. I want to just say also, um, one of my favorite shots of the whole movie was um, just a little throwaway transitional shot where mm-hmm. Bill Murray's on the golf course. Yes. And, and it's just, you've got the big mountain in the background mm-hmm. and the golf, golf course sort of in the middle ground. And then you've got Bill Murray in the foreground, like getting ready to take the shot. And he does a couple of practice swings and the camera doesn't move. It's just locked in place. Yep. And it's just this beautifully composed, very nice, very beautiful, you know, shot. And I just, when it came on, I was like, wow, that's amazing. And then he walks he out with the golf club. He makes an amazing shot too. Yeah. Right down the fairway. Like, yeah. No, I, again, it's, yeah. it's just an, like a 30 second shot in the movie, just a transitional mm-hmm. piece between two other sort of tentpole scenes of the movie. But no, it, it just reinforced to me the, the ability of Sofia Coppola as a director to just have that eye and, and like, you know, know what she wants to put on screen and just nail it. That could have taken like a week to get to. It very well might, but <laughs> you may have got on the first shot. Who knows? Who knows? But right? This is what we got on in the end result. And it's fantastic. So I think we need to kind of end things with the ending of the film. 
because this this is kind of like what it all comes down to. And I think the ending is the part that stands out to me the most. So she just says goodbye to him, but it's not a good goodbye, you know? And I think they both realize it. Yeah, it doesn't resonate, right? And that's not the way you say goodbye. And he poses for that picture with the Japanese commercial crew. The look on his face, like he is heartbroken. And he's not even looking at the photographer. Yeah, he's just heartbroken. Yeah. So he like leaves and he tracks her down. He catches up to her and they hug and he whispers something in her ear. And they kiss. Again, it's brief. It's not overly sexual. Right. So what does he say to her? So that that's the million dollar question. For years, nobody knew. And the people that knew, which would be Bill Murray, Scarlett Johansson, and Sofia Coppola, were in theory the only three people that would have had any idea what he was actually scripted to say. And they were sworn to silence for years. And so that was the big debate when the movie came out. Like, what do you think they said? Would knowing what they said have cheapened it? is not knowing what they said and sort of filling in the blank yourself a better ending. I think it is. I think leaving it ambiguous and up to the viewer. Like, I love it when the ending is not spelled out for you. But apparently in the more recent years, there has been um, uh, some discussion about like, well, what was in the actual script? Or what do you, you know, people nearby, or they've done like, um, if you take a high res quality of the movie and you put today's audio software into it, you can pull out like sounds and words. So we sort of know what we think was said, but... Well, the script was clear. Like, I think that's been made public. The script says, I'm, I'm going to miss you too. You know, is yeah, what he was which, supposed to say. But, but, but I don't what think he what actually said. whispered to her, who knows? And with all the improvising, like, like you said, I think, it's, I think it's best just to leave it... Because amb- amb- the ambiguity is, is a theme in this film. Yeah. Too. So yeah. I, th- I, I love the fact that you don't know what he says. And, they and they so, asked him, I remember years ago, they said like, yeah. you know, when, when will we know what you said to her? And he's like, you will never know. <laughs> like, yeah. he's not going to let it go out. But, and then they, they just leave, you know? And I think the moral of the story here is, if you're lonely, you don't always get to get over that. Yeah. You know, but even if just for a brief time, you can meet someone who makes you feel even just a, just a little bit less lonely that's okay. Yeah. So I don't know. That was my takeaway. I thought this I, I thought it was really good. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, we've talked about this with a couple of movies in the, in the last year or two, I think living through a pandemic where there was so much isolation yeah. and so many people were alone for such long periods of time, a movie like this, that is about loneliness and then about connections, even brief connections. I think it it's even more powerful now. I think if you had seen this movie 15 years ago, you're going to interpret it differently. You're going to feel differently than if you're seeing it for the first time now, post pandemic. So I'm really glad that you enjoyed it. I, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very happy. I enjoyed it a lot watching it again today. Um, and I'm glad we revisited it. Um, I, I like uh, that you brought up the pandemic thing too, because it does put a different lens on things as well. And mm-hmm. I hadn't thought of that even watching it, but I guess it was kind of always there for me. So that's, that's a good point as well. Do you want to give yeah. it a, a rating out of 10? Um, I was thinking about this because I knew you were going to ask me that question. I would probably give it an eight and a half, maybe a nine on a good day. I think today I'm giving it an eight and a half. I put it in my notes, eight and a half. Yeah. So eight and a half is is what I would put as well. well right so. on the same page with that yeah. one. So that's great. I, I I liked it. It was funny coming into it. You were like, you're going to hate this movie. You hate everything. But I actually like this one. Oh, I'm I glad you enjoyed it. it. You can hate the next one I recommend. Yeah. 
I, I probably will. But until until then, we have this. Fun with Caveman. All right, I'm going to keep things simple for you this week. I'm just going to ask you some Bill Murray trivia. Oh, boy. I think right. I'm going to be embarrassed on this. I don't know his catalog as well as as you do. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm a big Bill Murray fan, but I'm going to ask okay. you some, some, some trivia about Bill Murray. So we're going to learn some things tonight together. All of us are together. We're going to collectively learn about Bill Murray. All what right. is Bill Murray's highest grossing film, Derek? I, I, well, I got to think it's Ghostbusters. It's actually The Jungle Book from 2016. Oh, yeah, he was Baloo. He did the voice. $364 million in North America. What was number two? Do you know what was number two? Hmm. Well, now that you got me thinking along those lines, it's probably something more recent where he was just in it for a second. Uh, I don't know. I'll go back to Ghostbusters. Yes. Yes, Ghostbusters from 1984, $243 million. Although if you adjust for inflation. That's what I was just about to say, yeah. Ghostbusters by a mile wins. Yeah. As yeah, the highest okay. grossing film. All right, so Bill Murray is not the only member of the Murray family that's gone into acting, Derek, as I'm sure you yep. know. Can you name Bill Murray's three other brothers who have also acted in movies? Go ahead. I, I can't give you their names, but I know the one guy was in Caddyshack. He was the guy who ran the general store. Yeah, uh, Brian Doyle Murray. Doyle Murray, name. yeah. Okay. he's He's been in tons of movies with Bill Murray. He was in... in um, Groundhog Day as well. Yep. He was in Wayne's World. He was the guy who owned Noah's yep. Arcade. He sure was. Yep. He was in Caddyshack as well. Yep. Wasn't the guy, one of his other brothers, wasn't he in One Crazy Summer as Hoops? Or uh, not Hoops, but the guy whose mom, they all went to see his mom and she fed them the meals? Yes, he was. I don't he know was, what his real name is. Joel Murray. He was one chili dog in that yeah. movie. He's also, he is on the road right now doing Who's Live Anyway. Really? I went to, I went to see him, him live. Yeah. It was really, really, really good. Um, I don't know why he's doing improv with like Ryan Styles and great groups, but he is. Um, and then the third brother, do you know? No, I have no idea. Oh, man. It's John Murray. He was in sure. Moving Violations. I know you like that movie. I haven't seen that movie since it came out in the early 80s. But I know that you I remember that you liked it. So that's Bill Murray's brother. And the thing was, all three of those guys appeared with Bill Murray in Scrooged. Really? Yep. They all appeared in Scrooged with him, so. All right. Huh. The role of Peter Venkman in Ghostbusters yep. was, was actually not originally written for Bill Murray. What actor was originally supposed to play the part of Peter Venkman in Ghostbusters, Derek? Wasn't it supposed to be John Belushi? Yes. Dan Aykroyd wrote that for him and John Belushi to start. Could you imagine how different that movie would be oh, if it had totally had John different. Belushi in it? Like, and would it be better? Would it be worse? Or would it just be different? It'd just be different. And also yeah. the, um, the part of... Uh, uh, the other Ghostbuster was supposed to be Eddie Murphy. Yes, I had heard yeah. that too. Man, talk yeah. about sliding doors moment. I know. All right. So before becoming a big star, what theater group did Bill Murray gain his comedy training from, Derek? I got to think that was Second City. Yes, he was in Second City in Chicago. He joined the main stage in, in Chicago back in 1973, along with John Candy and Betty Thomas. Nice. So good company. Bill Murray was not an original cast member of Saturday Night Live. So what season did he join the cast? Season two. Yes, he did. So can you tell me what SNL cast member 
did Bill Murray get into a fist fight with backstage? Oh, it's got to be Chevy Chase. The guy he took over for, right? So, all right. So Bill Murray may have only played a small part in this movie, but his interest in pain made his role memorable. What was the title of this 1986 movie? Yeah. Little Shop of Horrors. He was, he was, was a, a dental patient. Steve Martin as yeah. the dentist, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be a dentist. It was so good. All right. What 1996 film did Bill Murray play a game of basketball? Wow. Uh, huh. I know, I know I'm going to know it when you tell me, but I don't know. Man, I should have got Yancey on here and asked him. It's Space Jam. Space oh, Jam. Yeah, oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Jeez. Only saw it once. Didn't like it. All right. Last one. Bill Murray has long been a favorite collaboration actor of Wes Anderson, as you mentioned yes. earlier. Yep. He's appeared in nine of that director's wow. movies. Wow. I know. So, although he's been in nine of Wes Anderson movies, what was the first Wes Anderson film that Bill Murray appeared in, Derek? Rushmore. Back in 1998. Very good. You, you So you were worried that you weren't going to do very good. Did I thought you were going to ask me, like, pretty well. what movie was this year? What movie was oh. that year? I'm like, I don't know his catalog that well, but I, apparently I know a little bit more about him than I expected yeah. to. And the brothers, you, you kind of knew them. You didn't know their names. But, uh, no, you yeah. did pretty good. Other than that, in Space Jam, you nailed it. So, all right. So it's time. It's over to you. So now it's, it's time for you to nominate a movie for us to watch. So... So what do you want to watch? Now, All right. We're going to go outside the realm of like, you know, movies celebrating their anniversaries. So just any movie at all. What do All you right. want? I'm actually going to give you a choice here. Mm-hmm. Okay. So since we just in the trivia talked about Wes Anderson and Bill okay. Murray, mm-hmm. I'm going to give you the option. We can watch the Royal Tenenbaums from 2001 okay. star studded cast. It's the Wes Anderson quirkiness, or we can go really new comic book movie. Deadpool with Ryan Reynolds. I think I'd rather go with a newer movie because we just okay. watched a kind of a quirky Bill Murray That's fair. movie That's and fair. I don't want to do that again. And I, I'm probably going to hate that one. Um, so I'll go with the newer movie, even though it's a comic book movie and I'm probably going to hate it anyway. But right. um, so, so which one is it? it? So we're going to go with the 2016 Ryan Reynolds movie Deadpool. Now, I Deadpool. assume you have not seen it. No, I've no, never seen All it. All right. I'm not going to tell you anything about it other than what I just did. Uh, it's uh, I, I got to think it's going to be available on Disney Plus since it's both I Fox and so. Marvel. But uh, you yeah. should have no problem finding this. I think I've seen this movie 10 times. I'm looking forward to watching it again, but it's a comic book movie. So you had me at comic book. Right. Uh, let's You're take it away. Guy. And hey, Ryan Reynolds, one of my Hollywood boyfriends. I'd watch him pretty much do anything. So all good. We'll come back next week. We'll talk about Deadpool. All right. So Deadpool 2016, you said it was? Yep. All right. So I'll watch this. Yeah. Other than that, the the only real comic book movies recently that I've watched are ones you've made me watch. I watch okay. Iron Man and Guardians, Guardians of the, the Galaxy. Galaxy. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And now Deadpool. We'll be, wa- so. we'll be watching Black Panther pretty soon. But for okay. now, we'll, we'll stick with this. Now, just, just to set your frame of reference, mm-hmm. Deadpool is not connected to any other comic book movies at all. It is a complete standalone you don't need to know anything going into it. Is the it less Marvel? you know, the better. Is it Marvel or DC or something? It, it is Marvel, but okay. even that, you don't need to know anything going okay. in. All right. So Leave it at that. We'll come back next week. We'll talk about Deadpool. This would be interesting because Ryan Reynolds, as we've mentioned before, usually just plays himself. 
Oh, it totally does. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see him play this comic book film. All right. So next time back, we're going to come back. We're going to watch Deadpool. We're going to review it. Um, So until next week, this is Chris McBride on behalf of myself and Derek Myers saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show.